Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Modern Criticism stands opposed to the history of the gospel in mightier array. With greater force or numbers and more powerful allies, than has ever been known in the case and annals of the Church of Theology before. This is a quote from a professor of theology from Holland, and he said it at the 1873 Evangelical Alliance meeting. Now, the EA was an ecumenical group, hoping to bring evangelicals together to discuss the issues of the day. There's always a lot of bluster about what is or isn't the number one threat to evangelicalism. This guy labeled it as modern criticism. It's a term we don't hear a lot these days. It's an idea from people like F.C. Bauer and the Tübingen School in Württemberg that questions if the Gospels are accurate. Is Jesus God? We'll get into the movement in our next episode. For right now, just know that in 1873, these guys saw something big looming on the horizon. Now, the professor didn't stop there. He pointed the finger at where modern criticism began. We have, first of all, to direct our eye to Germany, from whence, as the chief point, the impulse has been given to that great movement, which now divides so many hearts and lands. He blamed Germany. German delegates to the conference warned their brothers about what they saw in their own country. Americans would soon have a lot of reasons to be wary of Germany. Their theology? their role in the Spanish-American War, and of course, the impending world wars. German immigrants headed for the U.S. in record numbers, looking for a new life in factories and on the frontier. Maybe, just maybe, they would bring these newfangled ideas with them. It's like these guys had a premonition. They were able to look way down the line and predict a lot of battles headed their way, like labor unrest that would lead to talk of socialism. The pursuit of wealth by legitimate processes is in entire harmony with morality and depends on it. The truest charity which educates and trains the poor into the capacity to supply their own wants by their own labor and skill. That's a quote from the president of the Evangelical Alliance advocating that the best way to take care of the poor was to emphasize wealth. In his opinion, being rich was fine so long as it was earned legitimately. Doing so would teach poor people how to earn for themselves. Then there was the debate over what to do with evolution. Here's what James McCosh, president of Princeton, had to say. We do not yet see all things reconciled between these two sides, the side of scripture and the side of science. We see enough to satisfy us that the two correspond. It is the same world, seen under different aspects. McCosh tried to reconcile evolution and the biblical account that says God created the world in six days. This speech sparked a flurry of debates. Some said no, Darwin was completely irreconcilable with the Bible. Others argued that they could go together, just not for humans. 
Plants? Sure. Animals? Fine. Not people. Another used charts to identify how the creation story overlapped with evolutionary theory if one took the days of Genesis to mean eras. The whole matter could not be settled in one meeting, and certainly not in a hundred years of meetings. Evangelicals are still debating this stuff today. There was no consensus reached at this meeting. The only salve was offered by Henry Ward Beecher, the most popular preacher in the country. While we are taught by the scientists in truths that belong to the sensual nature, while are taught by the economists of things that belong to the social nature, we need the Christian ministry to teach us of those things which are invisible. He refocused the clergy present. Let the scientists do their thing. We need to keep doing God's work. The Evangelical Alliance meeting to me is a bit spooky. They saw what was coming and addressed it head-on. We think of the 1800s as this quaint little era of churning butter and roping horses. You know, little house on the prairie. In truth, it was a time of bitter upheaval. Wars where neighbor fought neighbor. Women pushed for the right to vote and for prohibition. Darwin's ideas about evolution. The thirst for conquest. Democrats and Republicans basically switched sides. And we did theological gymnastics that tried to construct a whole new vision of Jesus. In just 50 years, much of that would come to a head in one man, William Jennings Bryan. In one court battle, the Scopes trial, could Christianity stand up to the rising tide of modernism, or, like a cat sensing an earthquake, would it hide and pray for relief? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. William Jennings Bryan was born March 19, 1860, just over a year before the start of the Civil War. His family spent his formative years in Illinois. His father was a leading Stephen Douglas Democrat in Southern Illinois. Stephen Douglas being a famous senator. He ran for president and lost against a guy you may have heard of, Abraham Lincoln. Douglas was pro-slavery and super influential. He deserves his own season of a history podcast, but alas, not this show. Douglas was a hero to William Jennings Bryan's 
father. His father was a judge and uh, did run for office unsuccessfully. And Brian was uh, giving speeches from the age of five (laughs) to his classmates on his front step. What little kids do you know give speeches to their friends at five years old? I mean, nobody does that. This boy was a born politician. In the 1800s, great speeches were printed in newspapers and circulated widely. Massive crowds formed to hear people on lecture circuits. A lot of kids today dream of celebrity and influence on YouTube and TikTok. In the mid-1800s, it didn't get any better than being a great orator. They were pretty well off, settling on a large farm. One of Brian's later nicknames was the commoner. Now, how many common people grow up on a 520-acre farm? Nobody who runs for president three times is really a common man. <laughs> um, nobody who's one of the most famous Americans uh, and makes money every year, whether he's running for office or not, uh, giving speeches around the country is a common man. But, but you know, he did speak up for the interests of the common parenthesis, white man and woman, for that matter. And so in that sense, he was seen as the defender of the small businessman against the big businessman, the the defender of the small local bank against the big national banks, the defender of the farmer against the commodities markets and so forth. So he was in favor of the the small man, the little man against the big interests. And that's how he got the name of the great commoner. This season is full of moments that stretch and confuse. It's going to be difficult to say that this person stood for this certain issue because there will generally be some contradiction. Or like this movement started at this date and time. A lot of what created American Christian fundamentalism is a mishmash that pulls from different sources. Oh, and speaking of sources, that voice you hear is Michael Kazin. My name is Michael Kazin. I'm professor of history at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. I've written several books, but the one that we're talking about today mostly is a biography of William Jennings Bryan called A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan, which came out originally in 2006. He has a new book out this year called What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. William Jennings Bryan grew up in a privileged family, but he still did chores around the house like chopping wood, feeding the animals, and general farm labor. Henry Adams once said this about his own education. The American boy of 1854 stood nearer to the year one than the year 1900. Which is something to think about. Bryan grew up during the American Civil War, the 1860s, dirt roads, the automobile was in its infancy. There were no telephones, no electricity, airplanes, or radios. By the time he died in 1925, we had all those things. What Adams was trying to point out is that in the 1800s, we were still operating kind of like we did back when Jesus walked the earth. Across just Brian's lifetime, all that changed. One of the reasons I'm drawn to this era is that so much of what we deal with today was going on then. Massive technological shifts, immigration from different countries, civil unrest, and a lot of our current issues have their roots in the 1800s. Little Will Bryan was saved at the age of 14 and a revival. And his mother was a Methodist, his father was a Baptist. So he, he said he joined the Presbyterian Church because he wouldn't have to choose between one or the other so he could go to his own church. He was part of the Cumberland Presbyterian movement, defined by rejecting the Calvinist idea of predestination. That's the belief that God chooses who he's going to save. Brian was an Arminian post-millennialist. And if you've been listening to the previous episodes, 
you know what that means. Essentially, he thought it was up to the individual to make a decision for Christ, and that the world would get better and better until the return of Jesus. His father, as a judge, stopped court business to pray three times a day, sometimes more. His mother, who was very devout, I mean, he, he grew up in a very devout family, and he took for granted that one should be a, a devout Christian. And uh, he read the Bible very carefully, memorized large portions of it. He constantly referred to the Bible in public. Not only were his parents practicing Christians, they were also deeply involved in their community. His mother was part of the temperance movement, the largely female-driven movement to end alcohol consumption. And if I'm not mistaken, it took Brian a while to get on board with helping women gain suffrage. Yeah, well, I think his wife, Mary, who was very active in helping him as well, though she didn't run for office herself, and she was also a member of the WCTU. And, you know, Brian knew that most Democratic voters were not in favor of women's suffrage. They thought a woman's place was in the home, and Republicans actually were tended to be more in favor of women's suffrage than Democrats did. But it took a long time for the Republicans to be in favor of it, too. So, you know, in politics, you don't want to take stands if you want to get elected. Uh, you don't want to take stands that are that are very unpopular. I did a whole series of episodes on the Women's Christian Temperance Union back in season two. You can find it on the website. We tend to look back on the 1800s as this chaste, pure time of self-control. Throw that idea out the window right now. In the 1830s, the typical American drank three times what we do today. Three times. That's a shocking statistic. And it takes into consideration changes in alcohol levels over the years. In an era where women had little power when it came to owning property, obtaining divorces, deciding who to marry, and they couldn't vote, it was a big deal if your husband or father couldn't provide for you. If he drank up his paycheck, you and your children went hungry. The temperance movement wasn't a bunch of prudes running around wagging their fingers. It was a fight for survival. You can see why the cause was so closely tied to women. It was also associated with Christianity. Brian decided to follow in his father's footsteps to go to law school. And even though he, he got a law degree and began to practice law, he was, he was always interested in politics. He always wanted to go into politics, looking for his opportunity. At Illinois College, Brian took classes in biology and geology. This turns out to be a big moment for him, when he first began to question the account of Genesis, about the creation of the world in six days. Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, had been released, and while there was still a lot of speculation as to its validity, theories of evolution turn out to be older than Darwin. We'll get a look at that in a future episode. Suffice it to say, Brian, who years later would earn the name Mr. Fundamentalist, and who fought to keep evolution out of public schools? He wasn't against evolution entirely. It's just one of many ways that Brian didn't fit the label that was given to him, or that he took for himself. Will also attended lectures for abolition, though he was raised in a pro-slavery family and would soon lead the party of Jim Crow, the Democrats. It was in college that he started courting Mary Elizabeth Baird, his future wife. Their strict schools didn't allow dating, so they had to proceed in secret. A Latin teacher let them meet in his living room. True love, veris amor. Mary was no slouch. She graduated valedictorian from an all-woman's academy. Will was valedictorian of his school. He passed his bar exam, and so did she. 
and together they moved to Nebraska. He begins to go into dabble in politics in the Nebraska Democratic Party, which was split at the time between those who wanted to support the interests of smaller farmers who were kind of nascent populists and more sort of establishment Democrats who supported Grover Cleveland, who was the president in the middle of the 1880s and then again in the early 1890s. Cleveland was a sort of safe Democratic candidate. White Southerners praise him for putting former Confederate officers in his cabinet, while Northern workers and merchants liked his antitrust stances. In the 1800s, it was the Democrats who wanted a smaller government. Republicans coalesced around abolition and built a big federal government in order to fight the Civil War. Republicans set the slaves free. Democrats tried their darndest to keep black people as the other, not just in the South, but in the North, too, through laws and trickery. Cleveland could help them do that. Democrats were a pretty explicitly racist party back then. They made pretty clear that they did not want Black people to be able to exercise the right to vote, which they had in the 15th Amendment or other rights. Republicans were the party of Lincoln and emancipation. Democrats fought Reconstruction. So the Union Army occupied the South after the war, ensuring that they kept their part of the bargain. You can imagine that that built up some animosity. The South had just lost a war to the North, and now the North was occupying their land. In response, Southern states instituted what were known as Black Codes. Here's how it worked. The Civil War ended. A terrible war where brother fought brother. That was 1865. That same year, states like Mississippi and South Carolina passed Black Codes to dodge the 13th Amendment. There was a pretty big loophole in Section 1 of that famous document. See if you can spot it. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. It was illegal to enslave someone unless as a punishment for a criminal conviction. So, if a Southerner saw a group of black people hanging out somewhere, Vagrancy's a crime in South Carolina. They could charge them with vagrancy and, you guessed it, put them right back into forced labor. It was illegal to be black and not have a job, allowing white employers to pay minimal amounts on long-term contracts for African labor. Of course, this only infuriated emancipation advocates. They fought a whole war to keep people from doing this stuff, and here it was, alive and well, the same year that fighting stopped. So the Republican Party clamped down. In 1867, they passed the Reconstruction Act, dividing the South, except for Tennessee, into five military districts under the occupation of the North. Each state had to adopt the 13th and 14th Amendments before being readmitted. In 1870, the 15th Amendment guaranteed the rights of men to vote regardless of color. Black people quickly sought public office, with the first black man elected to Congress in 1870, just five years after the end of the war. And by the way, they were both from the South and Republicans. You probably know all this, but you likely don't know how Reconstruction ended. We all think we lived through the wildest election in U.S. history. Um, no. 1876 is a fascinating year. It tells us a lot about where the country was in Bryan's childhood and sets the stage for the rest of his career and the fundamentalist movement. 
He was just 16 when the election of the century went down. For the Republicans, Rutherford B. Hayes. Hayes was a congressman from Ohio. For the Democrats, Samuel Tilden. Democratic governor of New York. Tilden, the Democrat, wins the popular vote. But he doesn't have enough electoral votes. Does this sound familiar? The electoral votes were disputed in Louisiana, South Carolina, and reminiscent of the 2000 election, Florida. I don't know about you, but I'm having flashbacks of hanging chads. Now, if you don't know what hanging chads are, seriously, go ask an older person. So the election happened. November passed. December. It's January, and they still don't know who's going to be president. So they formed a congressional commission. And there went February. They were supposed to swear in a new president on March 5th. Time was wasting. So they came up with a compromise. Hayes would be president if, if he appeased the South. And he sends this weird mixed message. The moral and material prosperity of the Southern states can be most effectually advanced by a hearty and generous recognition of the rights of all, by all a recognition without reserve or exception. With such a recognition fully accorded, it will be practicable to promote by the influence of all legitimate agencies of the general government the efforts of the people of those states to obtain for themselves the blessings of honest and capable local government. A call to acknowledge the rights of all people followed by a little hint that states should be able to govern themselves. Long story short, there was a compromise. The Republicans, of course, wanted the presidency, but they had to give something up. What they did was return control of the South back to the states. The South then agreed not to trample on the rights of black people. And, of course, they must have had their fingers crossed behind their backs because we know they didn't keep their promise. Republicans got the highest office in the land, and Democrats, the future party of William Jennings Bryan, got the South. Just 20 years later, William Jennings Bryan would lead the Democrats as their nominee for president. Mr. Fundamentalist himself inherited the legacy of Jim Crow. Bryan begins to change that. Bryan begins to lead the Democratic Party to be the more modern liberal party we think of today, when we think the Democrats are the party that wants government to do more things for people, and the Republicans are the party that wants to do less for people. Soon, thanks to Bryan, the Democrats are going to get involved in everything from financial reform to prohibition. In the 1870s, their constituency grew in other areas. Democrats were still the party of the urban white working class in places like New York City and uh, Chicago. The urban machines were uh, led by, by immigrants, uh, often from Ireland, and they had support from urban workers. Brian became a champion of working people, while also failing to stick his neck out for those with different skin colors. He was a Christian, one of the best-known lecturers in the country on the Bible. Yet he led the party that oppressed a huge portion of the country, which leads us into some pretty complicated territory. Can a Christian run a party designed to oppress others? I'll leave you to think about that one on your own. Let's bring it to our modern days. What do we do in times of massive change, political upheaval, That's a question the Evangelical Alliance had to face in its day, and we're not so good at it now. 
two major groups formed to respond to the social and religious pressures of that day, fundamentalism and modernism. And just as with the election of 1876, the means to achieving their goals overshadowed their mission. The fundamentalists would become so militant in protecting the gospel that they tarnished the name of the gospel in the process. The liberals, hoping to make the world better, created a Jesus in their own image, one who would never ask them to change or question themselves. I'm here to tell you, neither response was biblical. In our day, when it seems things are in constant flux, what will we do? Will we be a people who get so focused on winning that we don't count the cost like the Republicans who ended Reconstruction? Or will we, when faced with challenges, understand that our process is just as important as our objectives? If we want to serve Jesus, we have to bend to his will, but also not be so protective that we forget our neighbors. It's a bit of a balancing act. Like William Jennings Bryan, we have to walk a tightrope. We'll make mistakes, and he made several. But if we're willing to do the right thing the right way, we just might discover a deep truth. We as Christians can't be a people of the ends. Christians are a people of the means. Special thanks to my guest, Michael Kazin, author of A Godly Hero, and his new book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. As per usual, you'll find a list of sources and discussion questions on the website at trucepodcast.com. This show is listener-supported. Become a patron for as little as $5 a month, and you'll get access to bonus episodes, patron-only conversations, and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. Your help makes this show possible. Visit patreon.com slash trucepodcast to learn more. Thanks to my friends who helped with the vocal work today. They were Marcus Watson of the Spiritual Life and Leadership Podcast, Jerry Dugan of Beyond the Rut, Melvin Benson of the Cinematic Doctrine Podcast, and my friend Bob Stevenson, radio personality extraordinaire. God willing, I'll be back in two weeks with more. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.